Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is four years old now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. My guest this week is Darren Apiegi, founder of In The Grain. The Campbellwell College of Arts graduate is an up-and-coming woodturner who creates many of his pieces from waste wood that he finds on a local farm not too far from his studio at Cockpit Arts in London's Deptford. He believes his work is about embracing the intrinsic beauty of wood, be it a crack, texture, knots or a lack of symmetry, adding that it's about allowing the wood to speak for itself and enabling the inner beauty of the wood to shine. His pieces have been included in shows such as 300 Objects during London Craft Week in 2020, Salon Art and Design at Park Avenue Armory in New York, and he's had his first show at the Garden Museum in 2021. He will also be exhibiting with the new craftsman at this year's Collect Fair, which runs at Somerset House from the 3rd to the 5th of March. Darren is definitely one to watch. Darren, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing very well and thank you for having me. Ah, it's a complete pleasure. It's taken, for various reasons, a yeah. while for us to get here, but I'm delighted that we're speaking now. So we're actually recording at about seven o'clock in the evening for lots of work reasons. We're doing this across Zoom and there's a kind of blank white wall. I'm guessing you're not in your studio. Unfortunately, I'm not in my studio today. Where are you right now? I'm currently in my home, in the comfort of my home. Okay. Where is the comfort of your home? In North Greenwich. So okay. it's not too far from my studio in Deptford. Okay, so we're going to cheat because what we generally do on this show is try and provide the listeners with some context of how you might work. So tell me, what does your studio look like? How do you work, Darren? So the centre focus in my studio is my lathe, which is a graduate union and everything else surrounds that. So I have like on my wall with all my tools on the side and then I've got a table where I kind of, you know, stash all my other documents and stuff that I need. So my lathe takes up most of my room in my studio and uh, it's my peace haven. I just go in there when I'm a little bit stressed, I just go into my studio just to think and to ponder. Right. And turn wood. And turn wood. That too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have this space, as you were saying, in uh, Cockpit Arts in Deptford. For those of you that don't know, and we have a lot of international listeners, Cockpit is a, well, it's a series or a a couple of makers and artist studios. There are two sites in London, Bloomsbury and Deptford, started in 1986. It has a business development team and and lots of other things such as open studio weekends. I mean, in short, it's a good place. And I think I'm right in saying that you kind of stumbled across it by chance, right? It was by accident. And that's the beauty of it. I was going home after just being around friends and just having a night out. And I came across Cockpit Arts randomly. And the next day, when I was wide awake, I did some research into corporate arts. And, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. It was on my doorsteps, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know anything about it at the time. You weren't looking for a studio, but you're on a, a night out. How did it catch your eye? I'm intrigued. It was the bright lights of corporate arts at the time. Ah. And I was like, what is this place? And at the time I was questioning, why haven't I heard about corporate arts? Mm. I was just about to graduate from uni and I was thinking about what's next. And so I was just open. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you had an eye out somewhere. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying that initially, at least, you received support from the Worshipful Company of Turners. Yes. How did that come about? So I applied. 
after hearing about cockpit arts, I applied mm. and I was quite fortunate to win the award. With the award, you get free studio space. Right. And you get a communal life. And so for the first year, it was just an opportunity for me just to experiment, not to focus on anything in particular, but just to experiment and to find myself after uni. Mm. Shall we talk about the work that you produce in this studio? Because we've kind of talked about the environment. You did it, you work in and yeah. and how you found it. I mean, from memory, I think I first came across your pieces at New Designers in 2018 in the one year on section. And when I think of you, an image of these pretty extraordinary vessels you turn from Banksia immediately spring to mind. I mean, you might disagree, but they seem to have become a bit of a signature piece for you. I'm kind of intrigued, what is Banksia? And how did you come across this material in the first instance? So a Banksia nut is a wildflower from Australia. Right. And it was just by chance. So I went to a timber shop in Camberwell called Wooden Timber. It no longer exists in the area. And I literally had a list of woods that I wanted to get. Mm. And fortunately for me, they didn't have any of the woods that I wanted, but they had the banks you're not collecting dust at the bottom of a shelf. And so the owner of Wooden Timber, he simply tried to sell it to me and I fell into it. It was the textures and it was something that I hadn't seen before. And I was curious. I was open to it. Mm. And that was the main thing. I didn't know what I could do with it. I didn't know if I could do anything. I just believed what he said. And I thought, why not give it a try and see what happens? <laughs> what did he say, Darren? Oh, he said you can just make artsy, fartsy stuff out of it. And, you know, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was just one of those things where I was like, I was in uni trying to find my way. And it was just like, yeah, why not? Mm. Where materials come from is quite important to you also, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you source a lot of your wood from the Woodlands Farm in Shooters yes, Hill. Yes, yes. So when you go there, what's your process? It's, again, just being open. So I rummage through the woods they have in the farm. So they have a massive wood pile and they have a lot of tree surgeons who literally dump their wood, you know, after they've cut it down. So these are trees that have naturally fallen. Mm. And so I literally go there every couple of months and I rummage through whatever catches my eye based on the textures of the wood, the tones. It might even be a little detail, like a knot. And I take it. I give them a donation. They love it because otherwise they would sell it as um, firewood. Right. And so it's a win-win situation for both of us. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me as you're rummaging around this piles of wood, it's actually imperfections you're looking for. 100%. Mm. I see it almost like a treasure hunt. You're just on the search for something. It could be something that just really catches your attention and they've got a massive wood pile. So I have to climb through the wood pile and I try to pick whatever catches my attention. And sometimes I could be there for hours on ends, just trying to figure out, trying to find different types of woods. And that's the beauty of it. It's not just about picking a wood that looks good initially, but it's actually searching for it, seeking for the wood. Mm. And that's a process in itself. Mm. And when you found the pieces of material you want to work with, what happens then? Do you have a sense of how a piece will look before you start working on it? Do you draw, for instance? It's definitely an organic process for me. I see wood like people, you know, you don't know what to expect from a person initially, but as you get to know them, their character unravels to you. And it's the same thing for me when I turn. 
I'll be carved into the wood and then, you know, I might see a beautiful grain that I didn't necessarily see initially when I picked the wood up. Mm. Or I might see a texture or I'll see a tone or a little knot that I didn't see before that was underneath the bark. And that might gain my attention. And so I see my making process or my designing process as a collaboration between me and the material. Understanding certain aspects of the material and enhancing those qualities of the material that I find interesting. Mm. So in other words, you take the piece of wood that you found, put it on the lathe and just kind of work with it. There isn't a diagram or anything as you, uh, before you kick off. It's exactly that. Yeah. And it's just nice to have that freedom to just do that. Not think it needs to be perfect in this way that I've, you know, dreamt in my head. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing about where your studio is, is that Eleanor Lakelin, who's a renowned wood sculptor, who's on the first series of this particular podcast. I mean, she was, I think you might have moved slightly because cockpit's undergoing some, yeah, uh, have, some major yeah. works at the moment, but she was right down the corridor from you. Yes, she I mean, was. do you go for her for advice or to swap tips? I mean, Eleanor, is her work's amazing and she's such a wonderful person as well. And it's just nice to have someone that has been through a similar career path to me. I almost use her as a blueprint. So whenever I'm stuck, whenever I need help, I go to her and she's always willing to give me advice mm. and also to make me realize that this is just the beginning and just continue to build, continue to experiment and to explore. Mm. Your family came from Ghana yeah. originally, and you've talked in the past about how Ghanaian sculptures have inspired you. Can you kind of point to their influence in your pieces? I would say it's through the rawness of the material. So I guess a traditional wood turner wouldn't really, I guess, appreciate my work in terms of it hasn't got like a beautiful finish per se. It hasn't got the elegance of a traditional wood turned piece per se. But with Ghanaian art, that's what it's about. It's rawness. It's more of an mm. expression. And I feel that's where my heritage links with my making process. It's very much organic. It's raw. We've talked about your current work, but I'm keen to know why you decided to work with wood in the first instance, Darren. I mean, you were studying what 3D design at Camberwell when you turned your first piece. But I would suggest rather unusually table tennis played a key role in your career path. And I, I need for you to explain that yeah. for me. <laughs> so I was... <laughs> how was table tennis pivotal? Well, it kind of directed me to turning by chance. And so I was in my second year and we had a unit where we had to learn a new skill. And this is where the table tennis comes in, by the way. Mm. And yeah, so yeah. the goal was <laughs> to pursue my first passion, which is table tennis. And so I wanted to get my work done as soon as possible. So I went into our workshop at the time, had a look around, everything was being used apart from the lathe. And no one knew necessarily how to use the lathe, even the technicians. So when I started, they were coming back and forth, just checking up on me to make sure that I was okay and I haven't hurt myself. Mm. And so the lathe was free and I was like, I'm going to get my work done as soon as possible <laughs> find one of my peers to play table tennis with and just enjoy myself and in the process of using the lathe and learning how to turn I fell in love with it I found it quite therapeutic mm. my work was terrible that wasn't the issue it was just enjoying myself and trying to understand the process making mistakes and learning from it so did you fall in love with wood 
turning the moment you started working or was there a slower seduction? It was definitely a slower seduction. Right. It took a bit of time. When I initially started, what was interesting is I wasn't looking at the time. I just started carving away. I knew it wasn't good, but I loved the process. There was something about it that kind of made me at peace when I was turning. Mm. And I loved that feeling. That's interesting. Richard Sennett, the academic, he wrote a book called The Craftsman and he talked about how makers get into a state of relaxed concentration. Yeah. Is that something you can relate to? 100%. It's about living in the present because we live in such a fast paced world. We don't actually live in the present enough. You know, we're always thinking about the past or we're thinking about the future. And for me, that period when I'm turning, it enables me to literally be in the present, mm. forget about what's going on and just really focus. So when you talk about being in the present, what is going through your mind as you're working away on the lathe? I'm examining the wood, understanding its qualities, and I'm infatuated by it as well. It's like, you know, when you're a child and it's Christmas time and in your head, you know what you want. So every day you go into the Argos catalog and you're constantly looking at it every day, examining the details of whatever it may be. It's the same thing every day. <laughs> so it's Christmas every day. It's Christmas every day. <laughs> <laughs> you taught yourself to turn by watching YouTube tutorials. Yeah. Did you have a sense of where the material and the technique could take you? If I'm being honest, I had no idea. And I think that's the beauty of it. There was no pressure. I think sometimes the issue is we put so much pressure on ourselves because we expect an outcome. But because I had that freedom, there was no expectation. Mm. Mm. It was just an opportunity for me to learn, fail a lot and pick myself back up, come back the next day with a clear mind, ready to turn. And um, were you sanguine when pieces failed? Because you have to accept failure, right? Yeah, I was. I was like... It went wrong, so be it. I've made a mistake, but how can I be better? What can I do to improve my work? That was the main thing, really. And do you still play a lot of table tennis? I don't, unfortunately. You don't? I don't have enough time. The wood has superseded the table tennis. It has. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, before I do these interviews, you know, I research my guests. And uh, an interesting thing about you is I went through a load of older press clippings which are interesting enough. Yeah. And, and you talked about many of the things we've just discussed. And then I found a more recent press release on the website of your PR agent, Zettler. Yeah. I've been a journalist for, I don't know, 25 years, Darren. And this is one of the most personal press releases I've ever read. I mean, it talks about your childhood growing up in Greenwich. It talks about the fact your mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Can we discuss that? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, how did her condition manifest itself? Initially, we had a good life. Um, up until the age of 10. So my grandma actually brought me up for most of it up until the age of 10. So right. she actually taught me how to speak the native language in Ghana, which is tree, before I could speak English. So I went to nursery not knowing how to speak, like a spot of English. Mm. And that was because she wanted me to be rooted in my culture. Did that make it difficult though? Can you remember nursery? Did that make it tricky? Initially for you, it did, mm. but... Now I know how to speak tree and that's going to stick with me forever. And that's part of my identity. So up until the age of 10, things were good. I had a strong family unit. I had an older brother as well. And then things started to go downhill once my father passed away, who I didn't have much contact with beforehand. Probably saw him a handful of times. He passed away and that kind of triggered 
my mum. At the time I was 10, I was, I was a very much an observant person. And so I still to this day remember everything that happened. And I remember that transition from when she got worse. And that happened when my dad passed away and he, um, we went to his funeral. This is probably one of my only, this is probably my most vivid memory of my father, actually. And, um, I just remember my mum crying, but it was just so weird to me at the time because I had never seen her cry in regards to him. She had never really spoken about him. And so it was interesting. And I think following months after that, I just saw a change in her. She was more reserved. The problem is that she didn't think she had any mental health issues. Right. And that was the issue. And so she lost her job and she just kind of went downhill and eventually affected me and my older brother to the point where we didn't have no money. We were just at the house and it was just dark and we were just barely eating. It was a difficult period in my life. However, I definitely feel like what happened in my childhood prepared me for my adulthood in terms of developing a craft practice. You're definitely going to have to be resilient. Things aren't easy. Things are not always going to go your way. But how do you deal with that situation? Obviously, it teaches you a great deal of independence, I'm sure. 100%. You became her main carer at the age of 10. So you were going to school and looking after your mum at the same time. What did that entail? Cooking, cleaning, making sure that she is okay, checking in on her. And to me, being a young carer, both me and my brother were, it was just something that became normality. I didn't feel like it was, I was doing anything exceptional at the time. It was just life and you just deal with it. What happens, the obstacles that you face. I hope you don't think I'm prying. There's a kind of stereotype of what somebody with schizophrenia behaves. Yeah. Hearing voices often seems to come with violence. I mean, is that what you experienced? Yeah, mainly. Um, Mom wasn't violent to us. However, she was constantly speaking to herself on a daily basis to the point where we just, it didn't even really affect us. It just, we just kind of carried on with life. And she didn't or couldn't seek help. So I think at the age of 17, I think I just got to the point where we had just got evicted and we were living in the hostel. And I just got to the point where I was like, something's just not adding up. Mm. And so I, along with me and my brother, we kind of made the decision to get her sectioned. And when she got sectioned, she got diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that's a big decision to make. Yeah, it's probably one of the hardest. Yeah. My parents are GPs and I remember very distinctly as a child, my mother having to section somebody. Yeah. It's not a pleasant thing to do. It's not easy at all. And I had to do it. And it was a situation where my mom passed away now, but even now she doesn't, she doesn't know that. You know, it was me that called up the institutions to section her. It wasn't easy at all. And the the issue is she didn't think she had mental health up until her death. And that's based on education, I I believe, Mm. and culture, unfortunately. Sounds incredibly difficult, Darren. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued. Then you're in the situation, you're you're living in a hostel, going to school, cooking, cleaning. Um, When did you decide to study design? So... I guess based on my childhood, I didn't know what to do when I was in college. You know, I was always good at art, not craft or anything like that, but just art. So I was studying art for A-levels, along with philosophy, English and media. 
And so I was in my second year and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I spent a lot of time in the art room, but at the same time, a part of me wanted to be a social worker based on my childhood and the things I've just told you. I just felt like at the time that I wasn't mature enough and I still had a couple of issues that I had to deal with at the time. So my art teacher, along with a couple of my um, peers, kind of said, why don't you just do an you know, art foundation? Because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, if what degree I wanted to study. And I guess just based on the fact that my mum was never really, she wasn't one of those parents that put any expectations on me in terms of, oh, you're good at this, so maybe you should pursue this certain, you know, going to this certain field. That was never really something that she did, unfortunately, based on her mental health. I definitely thought that is a blessing in the class because if I had that pressure, I'm not sure if I would be able to do this. She couldn't stop you. Is no, that what you're basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a blessing in the class. A lot of people don't understand what I do like in my family. Yeah. Yeah. So what does your brother do, I wonder? He's a gym instructor. Okay. So what were you like at school? You must have had so much going on. I was very quiet. Right. I was very quiet. I was quite reserved. I think at the time, in hindsight, now I look back and I was very depressed, but I didn't realise it. Mm. I just didn't understand that. But now I look back and I was like, yeah, I was really depressed. Did the school realise what was going on? No. I think one or two teachers may have noticed Mm. the school that I went to wasn't the best of schools. Although there were so many people that were super talented Mm. and are doing great things now, but it wasn't the best of schools. And I think a lot of people were living in hardships. So... It wasn't anything new to see me struggling, if that makes sense. If I was going to like an affluent school, I'll stand out like a sore farm. But at the time I was, I think a lot of people were going through issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Initially, I guess, table tennis. But then by the sound of it, wood turning became a kind of therapy for you. I mean, you have mentioned that it's, yeah. you find it therapeutic. Oh no, it is my sense of therapy. It keeps me at ease. I find it quite relaxing. Again, it's an opportunity just to be free. You know, I had a lot of constraints growing up, trying to balance so many things, which I'm very grateful for as well, because I wouldn't be who I am now, because I'm always balancing things. And so it's a blessing to be able to to turn and to have the space to do so as well. Where did you have time for friends and things, Darren, when you were growing up? I would probably go to like, we had like a local adventure park around the corner from where where I live. And so I would, me and my closest friend, Kareem, we just used to go out to adventure and just play or we would uh, walk around in Greenwich Park and just walk in the park and just embrace the trees and just observe and talk. Which is where the interest in nature came from, presumably. Yes. What's interesting is I've always had an interest in nature, just that in the early stages of my, you know, my life, I realised that I was fascinated by nature. And so as, as I've grown older, I, I realised I'm very observant. And sometimes I'll just be walking, I'll just be observing trees or I'll be looking at the textures on the pavement. Your mum very sadly died in 2021. Is that why you feel free to talk about your situation, I wonder? Definitely, I feel free. And what's quite weird, it's kind of similar to like Parkinson's or dementia, to the point where I had dealt with her death before she had passed away, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it does, absolutely. The mum that I knew from my childhood had kind of faded away. Me and brother were quite, we wasn't expecting her death because she passed away in lockdown. But at the same time, we were kind of happy that she was no longer in pain because her quality of life wasn't good at the time. So your life, as a result, must have changed dramatically in the past two years. It's changed quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
In what way? To a certain degree, I can just be free. I don't have to be outside thinking, is my mom okay? Or do I have to go back home any like soon? I have freedom just to go into my studio and just make as much as I want. I don't have to think, oh, I need to go back, make sure that she's okay. And in terms of, because I was her full-time carer, I couldn't go out of the country or anything like that. I didn't go on holidays or anything like that, only until recently. Wow. And wow. so I had an exhibition, as you mentioned earlier in Salon. I wouldn't have been able to do that before. Was she in a place where she knew what you were doing with your career and the kind of work you were making? Did she comment on it, I wonder? Not really, no. <laughs> so I remember one time I was in Living Etc. And I was like, look, mum, I bought the magazine because it was from Sainsbury's. You can get it from Sainsbury's. And um, I went to her and I was like, look, mum, I'm in Living Etc. And she just looked at it briefly and then she just kind of looked away, to be honest, unfortunately. I think she just didn't understand. And also she was just in her own world. She was going through her own issues. I didn't take it personally, but it's, you know. Mm. I mean, I know after a funeral, you did a month long residency at Cove Park in Scotland. Yeah. I'm interested, has your work changed as a result? Oh no, it has very much. The whole point for me to go to Cove Park was to experiment on scale. Prior to that, I was working on more of like a smaller scale with the Banksia Nuts. Was quite limited with size. And the goal was to kind of scale up using those qualities of the Banksia nut and applying it onto wood. So with the Banksia nut, it has three different layers. Right. It's almost like an onion. And so I thought, everyone knows me for the Banksia nuts, as you mentioned before. And I wanted to move on. It's like an artist, you know, you've got your first album and everyone knows you for your first album. And then you're, you know, you're doing performances and they always ask you to do that hit song. And you're like, <laughs> I'm tired. I don't want to do that song. Yeah, yeah. And so I used Cove Park to develop my second album. And your second album was about burrs, right? Yeah. It was about burrs. More importantly, it was about using a technique called pyrographics. Oh, okay. Let's talk about that. So it's essentially, I'll talk you through the process first. So Yeah, yeah, please. When doing a pyrographic vessel, initially I turn it on a lathe, carve it using a gouge, and then hollow it using a hollowing tool. And once I've done that, I will burn the wood. It's called a pyrographic machine. It's kind of like a soldering iron. And I burn the wood dot by dot, like pointillism. So it's quite a labor-intensive process. Mm. I burn the wood dot by dot. And the aim is to kind of using the grain to follow the, the transition of tone on the grain when I burn the wood. It takes a lot of time, but I, I really enjoy it. And weirdly enough, it stems from my art background. When I was in school, I used to draw and I used to do pointillism where I would use a pencil and I'll just, you know, draw something dot by dot. And so it was something that as an adolescent, I didn't realize, but I was training myself for at the time. The burrs and the burning, did they come at the same time? Because I read somewhere that there's a parallel between the burrs and your mother's fibroids that contributed to her death. Yeah, I, you know what it is with the burr? It's like, um, it's growth in a tree. So basically with a burr, it's almost like a cancer. It builds and it grows and it's quite irregular in shape. And so literally they have to cut off the burr, otherwise it causes the tree to rot. And I kind of see my mum in that same light in terms of how she passed away, unfortunately. So she didn't realise she had fibroid. Because of her mental state, she couldn't really understand the importance of going to a hospital. 
And so the fibroids was building and growing like a bell would grow, irregular in shape, multiple splodges and and lumps. And so unfortunately she died from internal bleeding because she didn't realise that, you know, she had fibroids. And I see birds like that as well, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, well, fortunately. But it's, uh, birds are beautiful. I love the fact that I'm using something that people necessarily don't really appreciate or don't understand. Like, you see it on trees everywhere you go, but you might not know why it is. This is like a future project. This is something I want to work on in regards to that. Communicating what Fireboys is, maybe through my work. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Just to let you know that the Material Matters Fair is returning to the Barge House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Once again, each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There'll also be a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the recycled aluminium giant Hydro will be there, as will the Wood Awards, Solid Wool, Hagen Hinderdahl and Mixed Metals, for example. And there'll be some exciting new names, such as Nova Vita Design. If you're interested in taking part, do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. You've talked in the past about being interested in fragility, imperfection and the disintegration of nature. Mm. Yeah, again, this, this is me being an observer. Seeing things fragile. What makes something interesting? What makes something beautiful when it's in a delicate position. That's what intrigues me when I go around in nature. Do you think your work has become more personal or are you simply able to talk about it more personally? I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Initially, I definitely feel like my work did reflect my personal life, just that I didn't communicate it. And also I didn't realise there was a connection. But as I've had time to kind of think and be a bit more introspective, I do realise there's a big link. There's a a massive link. I mean, you talk about the banks here not having different layers. I mean, did that reflect your mother in some way or or is that a bit crass? It's not a weird comparison. I I, I can see where you're coming from. Through my work, I see it it almost as a celebration of my mum. You know, that's that's her legacy. That's my legacy. This is a kind of a theory, but I definitely feel like if she remained in Ghana, she would probably be still alive. Why do you think that, Darren? I guess... Migrating to a, another country isn't always easy. Mm. And depending on your personality, it may be easier for you to integrate. But say if you're more of an introvert and family is quite key in your life, you move to another country and you've lost those connections, you've lost that foundation that makes you you. It's quite difficult to survive. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I take that point. I didn't ask this, but why did the family come over in the first instance? I think my mom was very to herself, so she didn't give much away. But I think like most migrants from, I guess, less economically developed countries is for a better life and to make sure the next generation are better than the previous generation, like most people try to do with the next generation of their family. You were the first generation to be born in Britain. You had so much going on anyway. Was that difficult in and of itself? It was, you know, when so many things are happening in your life, sometimes you just don't get that time to think about things deeply. But at the time, yes, it was very difficult. It was very difficult. Also, just not knowing who you are as a person was quite difficult. Balancing so many things. I was very shy when I was young. 
to the point I found it difficult to even look at people in the eyes. So it was difficult at the time. And also I looked quite old for my age. So I was quite tall. I had my growth spurt quite early. And so people always assumed that I was older than, than what I was. And so it was, uh, it was very difficult. But at the same time, I think being a carer made me realize the importance of being able to sacrifice. It's not always about you. And so I kind of learned to put my feelings to the side in order to focus on my mum. And where are you at now, Darren? I mean, obviously you're talking from a flat, you have your studio, you have your work. Yeah. You're in a good place. Oh, I'm very much in a good place. Like I'm good. I'm doing so many good things and I've got so many great opportunities. Like I'm taking part in Collect, which was one of my dream goals. And I had an exhibition in the salon, which kind of blew my mind. Didn't see my work going overseas. And then I've got an exhibition in February with a museum of art and design. Yes. Is this a solo show? No. So it's called... I should just say the Museum of Art and Design is in New York, right? Yes, yeah, in New York. Yeah. So it's the craft center centered and focus. So it's just an exhibition focusing on craft, essentially. Mm. Um, I believe Ellen has taken part in it as well, along with other woodworkers and other craft people. Very good. And who are you showing with at Collect, which is the Crafts Council's yeah. high-end craft fair? Yeah. So it hasn't been announced yet. Okay. But it's with the new Craftsman uh, Gallery. Ah, yeah. which is has just been bought by Sarah Myerskoff. Yeah, exactly. There's a strong wood connection. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of wood going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should explain. Sarah has a, a very high-end, very beautiful yeah. gallery, mainly showing wood kind of design, art, craft over in Barnes in yeah. South London and she exhibits all over the globe. So, wow. Congratulations. Very good. Thank you. And I read somewhere that you're writing a memoir. Yes. Yes. I felt like once my mum passed, it was something that I had to do. It's a story that I can't keep to myself because there may be people might, similar to me that are suffering and it's, it's important that I'm able to kind of pass on my story to help others. And so it's something that I've been working on for quite a while, just developing. It's quite therapeutic as well. I'm probably using this word quite a bit, but yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you say therapeutic because I was going to ask whether it's painful reliving some of this. You know what? I look at it now and I just smile because it doesn't even seem like my life anymore. Mm. You know, we've both me and my brother have developed as people and we are just working to kind of make our mum proud, you know, that she didn't come here in vain. And we're just trying to, you know, provide a strong foundation for the next generation of our family. And so that's the key. And so I definitely feel like with what happened to us, the best thing we can do is pass it on to the next generation and help others. And as a maker, that's the key for me. It's, it's about helping others, passing on what I've learned. Well, Darren, I think that's a really, really beautiful place to end this interview. Thank you so much for, for being Thank you for having me. so honest. And I, I think... I think your mum would be very proud of you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing your work at Collect and good luck in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. To learn more about Darren, go to darrenfeag.co.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. 
If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Next week, fingers crossed if my microphones make it through customs, I'll be talking to Inika Hans about product design and the circular economy. Until then, thanks very much for listening. 